Okay, good morning everyone, or good afternoon rather, I should say. Uh, welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover and I'm a partner here in the Surety Law Group at Wright Constable Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. Today I'm joined by my partner, Mr. George Backrack, a man who needs no introduction and who isn't going to get one anyway. So, Now at this point, I, I, I always go over the same housekeeping stuff and you might be wondering why does he always say the same things? The reason is because every month we have first-time participants, and those first-time callers need to get the housekeeping stuff. So I apologize to all you regulars and repeat callers, but we got to go through the same stuff. As you know, Surety Today is designed to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety issues. Wherever you are, if you have a phone, you can dial in. If you missed a presentation, you can listen to a recording now at three different locations. One is our website here at the firm at wcslaw.com or as a podcast at podbean.com, Surety Today, uh, or on our new microsite at suretytoday.net, all one word and lowercase. The new microsite explains all about Surety Today and there's also a path to requesting a PIN. So if somebody, if you think somebody might be interested, you can send them to that website and they can learn all about it and, and request a PIN all in one spot. Uh, the site's new, so I think if you Google it, you won't find it. You have to type it into the URL. Uh, but the program is offered only to in-house claims professionals, and we have issued over 250 pins, and we've had over 700 people uh, call in since we started the program back in May 2016. And we appreciate everyone's support and ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in. If you have any suggestions for topics or improvements, please let us know. And if you have any technical issues during the call, please contact Ms. Jeannie Hyatt, J-H-Y-A-T-T, at WCSLaw.com. We've muted the line during the presentation, of course, to avoid background noise. And um, as I said, we're also recording. At the end, we'll unmute the line for any questions. Okay, so this is the second presentation in a series of surety bankruptcy-related presentations that George and I are giving. As I mentioned last month, our surety law group has extensive experience in the bankruptcy arena, having represented sureties in bankruptcy courts all over the country and having written and presented on the subject extensively. Now, last month, November 13th, we discussed the automatic stay, which, of course, is the stay of any actions against the debtor or property of the debtor's bankruptcy estate as of the filing of the debtor's bankruptcy case. We also discussed the concept of property of the debtor's bankruptcy estate, which is comprised of all legal or equitable interests of the debtor, wherever located, by whomever held. Today's presentation is titled, Bankruptcy, the Debtors and the Sureties' Rights to the Bonded Contract Funds. Once a principal files a bankruptcy case and becomes a debtor, what are the debtors and the sureties' rights to the bonded contract funds? This is frequently one of the main battlegrounds in bankruptcy, so we thought this was an important topic to address. 
Of course, the debtor or bankruptcy trustee will contend that the bonded contract funds are property of the debtor's bankruptcy estate and are subject to the automatic stay, which, of course, prevents the surety from taking control of or utilizing the funds. The debtor may further contend that it can use the bonded contract funds under Section 363 of the Code because such funds constitute cash collateral in which the debtor has an interest and that the bonded contract funds may be used pursuant to a bankruptcy court order. The surety's rights to the bonded contract funds, of course, arise in a variety of ways. For example, through the general indemnity agreement, under the indemnity agreement, the principal, now the debtor, has the obligation to hold the surety harmless for any performance and payment bonds executed by the surety and to indemnify and reimburse the surety for any losses under those bonds. The surety rights also arise by operation of law under its rights of equitable subrogation if the debtor is in default under the bonded contract and the surety performs under its bonds. The surety has the right and the expectation that the contract funds, which are security or collateral for the surety's performance, will be used by the debtor to perform the bonded contract and to pay the debtor's subcontractors and suppliers. The surety may also have rights as a secured creditor if the surety timely perfected its security interest in the contract funds. As will be discussed today, oftentimes major problems arise with respect to the bonded contract funds in the bankruptcy context because the debtor and or the trustee are simply unaware of or don't recognize that the surety has rights and interests in the bonded contract funds. Accordingly, part of the surety's job in a bankruptcy is to make sure that all the parties, the debtor, the trustee, secured creditors, and especially the judge, are aware of the surety's rights. So George will begin our discussion today by explaining the structure and effect of Section 363 of the Bankruptcy Code. That's the authorizing statute for the debtor's use of cash collateral. I will follow by discussing the surety's defenses to the debtor's 363 motion. George will then talk about what the surety should hope to accomplish with respect to the bonded contract funds. Next, I will review some of the practical steps that the surety can take with respect to protecting its rights and interests in the bonded contract funds. And then finally, George will close with a brief discussion of the use of surety financing in bankruptcy as a means for the surety to obtain control over the bonded contract funds. George, I'll turn it over to you. Section 363 of the Bankruptcy Code addresses the debtor's use, sale, or lease of property of the debtor's bankruptcy estate. The debtor's use of property could be any of the debtor's property, including equipment, inventory, materials, etc. The debtor's use of property that we will be discussing today concerns the bonded contract funds from the contracts bonded by the surety, which may fall under the definition of cash collateral in Section 363. Cash collateral means cash or other cash equivalents whenever acquired in which the estate and an entity other than the estate have an interest. The bonded contract funds are obviously cash or cash equivalents, equivalents in which the debtor asserts that it has an interest. Therefore, if both the debtor and the surety have an interest in the bonded contract funds, then the bonded contract funds are cash collateral under Section 363 of the Bankruptcy Code. Section 363C2 provides that it is the debtor's duty to forbear from and not use cash collateral unless one of two things happen. Each entity that has an interest in such cash collateral consents or the court after a notice in the hearing authorizes such use in accordance with the provisions, the provisions of Section 363. 
Furthermore, at any time on request of, of an entity that has an interest in property used or proposed to be used by the debtor, the court may, with or without a hearing, prohibit or condition such use as is necessary to provide adequate protection of such interest. As a result, the surety may consent to the debtor's use of the bonded contract funds, or the debtor may, pursuant to a motion to use cash collateral, or the surety either in opposition to the debtor's motion or pursuant to the surety's own motion to prohibit the debtor's use of cash collateral, may go to the bankruptcy court for a determination as to whether the debtor has the authority to use the bonded contract funds. In that event, Section 363 provides that in any hearing on the debtor's request to use cash collateral, which are the bonded contract funds, or the surety's opposition to the debtor's use of the bonded contract funds, the entity asserting an interest in the bonded contract funds, namely the surety, has the burden of proof on the issues of the validity, priority, or extent of such interest that the surety has in the bonded contract funds. Also, the debtor, however, has the burden of proof on the issue of adequate protection to be provided to the surety for the debtor's use of the bonded contract funds. Therefore, there really are three issues to address. The first issue is whether the debtor has an interest in the bonded contract funds. If not, then the bonded contract funds may not be property of the debtor's bankruptcy estate. Assuming for the moment that the debtor has such an interest in the bonded contract funds, which then become property of the debtor's bankruptcy estate, there are two other issues. The second issue is whether the debtor recognizes that the surety has an interest in the bonded contract funds. Regardless, it is still the surety's obligation and burden of proof concerning the validity, priority, or extent of the surety's interest in the bonded contract funds. Mike Stover will address the first two issues of whether either or both the debtor and the surety have an interest in the bonded contract funds, which would then make them cash collateral under Section 363. I will then address the third issue, if the bonded contract funds are cash collateral, what is the adequate protection that a surety requires in order for the debtor to be able to use the bonded contract funds for its operations during its bankruptcy case? Mike? Okay, so the debtor uh, has filed a motion under, uh, under Section 363, as George talked about, of the Bankruptcy Code, to use the bonded contract funds as cash collateral. Well, what are some of the defenses that the surety can assert in opposition to that motion? The first defense that may, um, that may be used is that the bonded contract funds are not property of the estate under the Bankruptcy Code. For Section 363 to be applicable, the property that is the subject of the motion must be property of the bankruptcy estate. As George discussed last month, Section 541A1 of the Bankruptcy Code provides that the filing of a petition in bankruptcy creates an estate which consists of all legal or equitable interests of the debtor in property as of the commencement of the case. It is important to note that the bankruptcy estate under Section 541 succeeds only to those property interests that the debtor had as of the date of the commencement of the bankruptcy case. Stated differently, the filing of a bankruptcy case does not and cannot give a debtor or its creditors greater rights in property than the debtor had prior to the bankruptcy. 
Bankruptcy law does not create property rights. Rather, the bankruptcy court will look to state law to determine if the debtor has any valid property rights. So there are three primary arguments that a surety can typically assert to support a position that the debtor's 363 motion should be denied because the bonded contract funds are not property of the estate. First, uh, the first position would be that the debtor is in default. Most courts recognize the basic rule of law that when a party defaults under its contract, the defaulting party is not entitled to any further payments under that contract. This is so because when the debtor is in default, the obligee is entitled to withhold the funds and payments under the terms of the bonded contract and to use such funds to complete the bonded contract. Thus, the debtor has no interest in or entitlement to the remaining contract funds, including retainage on the bonded projects. Because the debtor has no interest in or entitlement to the remaining contract funds, such funds are not property of the estate under the bankruptcy code. The Third Circuit recognized this concept in the case of In Re Modular Structures, Inc., 27F3-72, Third Circuit, 1994, where the court held that, we can, quote, we conclude that based upon the record currently available in the present case, Modular breached its contractual obligation to pay its subcontractors and was therefore not owed the monies held by the obligee. Under these circumstances, those funds are not properly considered part of the estate in bankruptcy, end quote. The second argument to assert is that the bonded contract funds are trust funds. The creation of a trust alters title or ownership of the trust property. Instead of the principal having total and complete ownership over the bonded contract funds, upon creation of a trust regarding such funds, the principal becomes a mere trustee with only bare legal title. And the beneficiaries of the trust, the surety, the subs, the suppliers, they become the equitable owners of the bonded contract funds in trust. On November 14, 2016, Lou Kozlikowski and I discussed trust funds in detail, and you can refer to the transcript or audio file of that presentation for more in-depth analysis of trust issues. But trust fund provisions can be found in the indemnity agreement, the underlying construction contracts, or in a trust fund statute if, they, if there is one in the applicable jurisdiction. Section 541D of the code provides that property in which the debtor has only legal title becomes property of the estate, but only to the extent of the debtor's legal title. The equitable interest in the property does not become part of the estate. So we see from subsection D of the code that the bankruptcy code has been drafted in a way to protect trust property expressly recognizing and preserving that special nature of trust funds and the distinction between legal title and equitable title. So the court will look to state law to determine if a valid trust exists and what rights the debtor and the surety have. The surety will have the burden of proof in establishing the existence of a trust. Most courts that have addressed this issue have held that trust fund provisions in the general indemnity agreement or construction contracts or trust fund statutes are valid and have ruled that the trust property is not property of the estate. Thus, those trust fund provisions can be used by the surety to argue that the debtor cannot assert control over the bonded contract funds pursuant to Section 363 because the funds are subject to a trust. A third argument to be raised is based on equitable subrogation. Equitable subrogation arises by operation of law. It's not dependent on contract. It's not dependent on privity of the parties. It's a creature of equity and is founded upon principles of natural justice. 
As one court noted, quote, the rationale of subrogation is bottomed on a sensitivity to the comparative equities involved. When one is more fundamentally liable for a debt which another is obligated to pay, such person shall not enrich himself by escaping his obligation, unquote. The Supreme Court has noted that there are few, jo- few doctrines better established than that a surety who pays the debt of another is entitled to all the rights of the person he paid to enforce his right to be reimbursed. Thus, where the surety performs pursuant to a performance and or payment bond, it has rights to reimbursement from the remaining contract funds ahead of the debtor. Because of the surety's subrogation rights, the remaining funds in the bonded contract are not property of the bankruptcy estate. Now, the court in In Re Alcon Demolition 204 Bankruptcy 440 uh, the Bankruptcy Court of the District of New Jersey in 1997 recognized this fact and observed as follows, quote, The doctrine of subrogation has the effect of removing the subrogee's traceable property interest from the bankrupt estate. At the debtor's default on the underlying contract, he is not entitled to the contract funds because performance has not been completed and because material men and laborers have not been paid. When the surety performs in place of a debtor and completes the contract, the entitlement to contract funds arises. However, equity demands that the debtor not receive a windfall. Thus, subrogation places the surety in the position to exercise the debtor's rights to identifiable contract funds, effectively removing that property from the estate and rendering it unavailable to the general creditors. Finally, you can make the argument if uh, the surety has filed a UCC-1 and perfected its security interest under Article 9 that the funds, uh, the contract funds are subject to the surety security interest. <clears throat> because the security interest, the surety will be entitled to adequate protection of its interest in the bonded contract funds, just like a traditional lender or other secured creditor, and that may be used as a defense to the 363 motion. And George will talk about the concept of adequate protection in a moment. Assuming that both the debtor and the surety have proven that each has an interest in the bonded contract funds, it becomes the surety's main goal in obtaining and the debtor's burden of proof in providing the surety with adequate protection for the debtor's use of the bonded contract funds. Specifically, the surety will want the debtor to use the bonded contract funds to pay the performance and payment bond claims for which the surety may become liable. Well, what is adequate protection that a debtor may provide to a surety? Section 361 of the Bankruptcy Code defines the kinds of adequate protection that the bankruptcy court may grant to a creditor that has an interest in the cash collateral. The concept of adequate protection involves providing the creditor, such as a surety, with something to protect the surety in addition to the cash collateral, namely the bonded contract funds. To the extent that that the debtor's use of the bonded contract funds results in a decrease in the value of such equities interest in such property. When the debtor spends the bonded contract funds in in a way that does not reduce the surety's risk and exposure to loss for the performance of the work and the payment of the debtor's subcontractors and suppliers on the bonded project, then the surety faces a decrease in the value of the surety's interest in the bonded contract funds. They are not being used to reduce the surety's risk and exposure to loss and liability under the bonds. 
Now, the specific kinds of adequate protection described in Section 361 may be more suitable to banks with a perfected security interest in the debtor's receivables. However, Section 361.3 of the Bankruptcy Code authorizes the Bankruptcy Court to provide adequate protection to creditors such as a surety by granting such other relief that will result in the surety obtaining what is known as the indubitable equivalent of such entity's interest in such property. In the surety's opinion, the only indubitable equivalent to the bonded contract funds are the bonded contract funds themselves. And for their use as contemplated by the surety and the principal when the performance and payment bonds were originally executed and delivered to the obligees. As a result, the bankruptcy courts in various cases have provided the surety with real and beneficial adequate protection for the debtor's use of the bonded contract funds, which is for the surety to obtain some measure of control over the use of the bonded contract funds, usually along with the debtor. Whether by agreement between the surety and the debtor or after the surety takes some action to prohibit the debtor from using the bonded contract funds or conditioning the debtor's use of those funds, the best adequate protection for the surety for the debtor's use of the bonded contract funds is for the surety to control the bonded contract funds, either on its own or jointly with the debtor. The chances of this occurring are good and supportable by case law and practical circumstances. In the transcript of this presentation, we list two relevant cases, NRA RAM construction and NRA Glover construction. The citations to both of these cases may be found in the transcript, and quotations from both of the opinions that emphasize the protections that the bankruptcy courts have provided to the surety are contained in Exhibit A to that transcript, which should be available shortly. The takeaway from both of these cases and subsequent cases is that the bankruptcy courts have granted the surety with control over the debtor's use of the bonded contract funds as adequate protection of the surety's interest in those funds to ensure that the bonded contract funds pay the obligations for which the surety would otherwise become liable for under its bonds. The surety may also have a contractual right to adequate protection for the debtor's use of the bonded contract funds based upon the terms of your indemnity agreement or some joint control escrow financing agreement which the principal executed prior to becoming a debtor in the bankruptcy case. The terms of those kinds of agreements may provide the surety with control over the bonded contract funds, such as the collection of the bonded contract funds, for the debtor to request their use, uh, and what contract funds may what the bonded contract funds may be used for, such as the debtor's performance of the work, supervision of the subcontractors, payment of substance suppliers, etc. The terms of those agreements are similar to the kinds of adequate protection terms that the bankruptcy courts have granted to the surety in NRA RAM and NRA Glover and the surety should point out to the bankruptcy court that such adequate protection has already been agreed to by the principal, now the debtor. Therefore, the surety should argue that the contractual adequate protection should be granted as the surety's adequate protection for the debtor's use of the bonded contract funds during the debtor's bankruptcy case. Mike? Okay, George, thanks. Uh, so. In connection with this issue of yeah, the bonded contract right. funds and bankruptcy, what are 
what are the uh, practical um, actions that the surety should consider uh, when you're faced with uh, with a bankruptcy of the principal? First is, you know, monitor the docket and check all the notices. Motions that may affect collateral or contract funds could be filed at any time in the bankruptcy process, so the surety will need to be vigilant to protect its interests. It's not uncommon, uh, particularly in Chapter 11 proceedings, for example, for the debtor in possession to file a bunch of first-day motions. Right when the bankruptcy is filed, it's filed with a bunch of motions about all the stuff that the debtor has already been trying to work out before it even filed. Uh, and part of those motions would be, uh, typically would include a motion to use cash collateral under Section 363. It is also not uncommon for the debtor, trustees, and other creditors like secured lenders, as we've mentioned, to be unaware of the surety's interest in the bonded contract funds and, and, and enter into deals and agreements uh, regarding the use of those funds without any consideration of the surety's rights or interests. Thus, the surety must always be sure to review the dockets and notices. And this can get difficult in, in large bankruptcy cases. I mean, you literally have tens of thousands of filings in the thing over time, and you really have to be uh, diligent about that. So the next tip is to call the debtor's counsel and alert the debtor's counsel of the surety's rights in the bonded contract funds. As noted above, debtors, trustees, secured creditors often are unaware of our rights. Uh, and interest in the funds. They wrongly assume that if no UCC1 was filed, that there's no interest in the funds by the surety. Accordingly, one of the practical tips for early on in the bankruptcy is for the surety to contact the debtor's counsel and determine whether counsel is aware of the surety's rights and interests. If they are not, then an education must be provided. During that call or subsequently, it, it often makes sense to see if a deal can be worked out regarding the use of the bonded contract funds to pay substance suppliers, uh, as George was talking about, or to complete the job. If you cannot work out a deal, then obviously you're going to have to litigate in the bankruptcy court to protect your interests. Another practical consideration is the motion to prohibit or modify the debtor's use of cash collateral. Pursuant to Section 363 of the Bankruptcy Code, the debtor is not entitled to use the cash collateral, such as the bonded contract funds, unless the parties um, unless first, one, the parties that have an interest in the cash collateral have consented, or two, the bankruptcy court after a notice and a hearing has authorized the use. However, sureties should be aware that debtors often use cash collateral without complying with Section 363 until a creditor objects or takes some action to restrict the use of the funds. Because the code does not provide any sanctions for a violation of 363, debtors do not always properly police themselves. Accordingly, in a case where there is significant cash collateral, the surety should consider filing a, no a notice when it enters the case advising that the surety does not consent to the debtor's use of the bonded contract funds as cash collateral. The surety may also want to consider filing a motion under Section 363 to prohibit or modify the debtor's use of the contract funds. As George noted, 363E of the code provides that at any time on request of, en of an entity that has an interest in the cash collateral, the court may prohibit or condition such use as necessary to provide adequate protection of such interest. Of course, the surety will have the burden of proof uh, on such a motion, but it may be the only way to ensure that the bonded contract funds aren't misused. Next, um, practical consideration is to consider providing a notice to the obligee. And that notice would basically 
explain to the obligee the respective rights of the parties in the bonded contract funds and that the obligee's obligations with respect to such funds. Now, you've got to be careful with this kind of communication because of the automatic stay. If the surety simply told the obligee not to pay the bonded contract funds to the debtor, that would likely be viewed as a violation of the stay. But the surety may be able to avoid running afoul of the automatic stay if the communication with the obligee is one that simply explains the rights and the law. The notice can detail the rights of the parties under the bond, the bonded contract, and at law, and remind the obligee that it has an obligation to protect the surety's interest in the contract funds and notify the obligee that if it fails to satisfy its obligations, the surety may be discharged or the obligee may be forced to pay twice. There should be no explicit direction not to pay, only friendly advice as to the rights and the possible consequences. There's no case law directly on point addressing this option, so there's risk that some court might construe this communication as a violation of the stay, but there's also a risk in not sending the letter because just as the debtor, trustee, and creditors might not be fully cognizant of the surety's rights, the obligee may be similarly unaware. The problem is the obligee is generally the party holding the funds, and it's much easier to try to convince the obligee up front to hold the funds than to litigate in the bankruptcy court to get the debtor to disgorge those funds that were improperly paid or to litigate with the obligee over improper payment issues. The final issue that we will address is the effect of the surety's financing of the debtor in this Chapter 11 bankruptcy case and on the surety's rights to the bonded contract funds. Let's face an obvious fact that the surety's financing of its principal outside of a bankruptcy case is usually not favored by most, if not all, sureties. Financing is, financing is normally done in unusual circumstances, such as where the principal is honest and competent and just lacks the cash to perform, there are really no better alternatives, and the estimated cost to complete the performance of the work are better with financing than other options and other reasons. Despite such circumstances, why in the world would a surety finance a debtor in bankruptcy? The initial issue is what does surety financing of the debtor in bankruptcy look like? There are at least two possibilities. First, the surety may provide cash to assist the debtor in performing the existing bonded contract work and to pay its subs and suppliers on the bonded projects, both of which are payment obligations that the surety may already have under its performance and payment bonds. This financing may help solve the immediate problems of the performance of the existing work. Second, the surety may provide additional surety credit to the debtor in the form of surety bonds on new projects. This may result in the surety reducing its ultimate loss through future reimbursements and keeping a customer on an ongoing basis. It also might increase the surety's loss in the long run. In either case, the surety is providing new consideration and surety credit to the debtor and would want consideration in return from the debtor. Section 364 of the Bankruptcy Code addresses the debtor's obtaining of credit, including surety financing. The debtor requires bankruptcy court approval to, to obtain new surety credit, whether it's cash or new bonding. Since the normal protections in Section 364 rarely apply because the debtor never has any new collateral to provide to the surety, the surety will require for its financing, among many other things, control over the bonded contract funds as adequate protection to ensure that they are used to reduce the surety's exposure to loss and liability under its bonds. 
In summary, if the surety provides financing of some kind to a debtor, one of the surety's first requirements will be to obtain control over the bonded contract funds as adequate protection for the surety financing. Therefore, financing the debtor, if, otherwise, if it otherwise makes sense to the surety, will result in the surety's obtaining control over the bonded contract funds. If the surety's financing of the debtor makes no practical or economic sense, then Section 364 will not benefit the surety in obtaining control over the bonded contract funds. Mike? All right, so we'll close up here. We're a little bit over time. Uh, before I open the line for any questions, I want to let everybody know the next surety today will be Monday, January 8th, 12.30 Eastern Time. George and I will continue our series on bankruptcy, and we will discuss bankruptcy, the surety's proof of claim. Events in the surety industry, the Philadelphia Surety Claims Lunch, which was originally scheduled for January, has just been moved to February 28th to avoid conflicts with the FSLC midwinter meeting. The Atlanta Surety Claim Association has not established its 2018 schedule yet. Chicago Surety Claim Association's next lunch is February 1st. And, of course, the ABA FSLC midwinter meeting will be held January 24th through the 26th in Washington, D.C. I'll be speaking with Jamie Perkins from Merchants on Builders' Risk Policies. Let me um, open up the lines here.